Well, good evening and welcome to the call. This is Building Generationally Kingdom Management Part 1. And we are now in the sixth session. This is the final session of this six-part teaching. So let's begin in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for everybody on the call. We thank you for their heart, for you, their hunger to grow in Christ, their willingness to invest time and resources in trying to go deeper with you. So give us all grace for the journey. Give us wisdom and discernment. Father, give us grace to learn what we need to learn tonight. May we learn to be your servants and truly be those that fulfill your purpose for our lives, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me just do a quick review here of what we've covered. We've been through um, six sessions, five sessions. This is number six. And tonight we're going to conclude our discussion here on rule, which is the essence of generational transfer, learning to rule well. You will never rule well by yourself. Uh, The commission we have before God, the truly great commission is to be his ruling agents, but that will never happen well individually, alone. We certainly have to do that individually, but we, we are called into organizational context, families, Christian communities, organizations where we work, and of course, the society at large. So we we live in a a context of organizations, and we have to learn how to rule in that context. So we have to learn how how God works in that context, and that's the challenge. Can we see with metaphysical awareness what God is doing through history? Can we see what role we play in it? Can we faithfully rule as he's called us to? So in session one, we talked about the foundation struel, which largely is thinking biblically, having a Christian worldview about what God is doing, big picture, long term, recognizing the multi-dimensions of purpose, individual purpose, family purpose, organizational purpose, and meta-narrative purpose, and understand how they all fit, to the, fit together, they're congruent, and we're all called to play a role in each of those. So the challenge is learning to live in that reality. Session two, we talked about recognizing enduring purpose, that God is multi-generational, and therefore he has purposes that transcend our lives, transcend our lifetimes, transcend maybe our children's lifetime and our great-grandchildren. He works big picture long-term. And when we begin to look for how, how he's working and what he's trying to accomplish, we begin to get a sense of the purpose of God for our lives and how we fit into his bigger purposes. Session three was understand the C4 people are the building blocks. On one level, this is very understanding, uh, uh, simple to understand, but on another level, it's extremely difficult. It's so hard today to find C4 people. There seem to be so few. Churches are not producing them. Families are not producing them. Schools are not producing them. And businesses are not producing them. So we have this uh, plethora of people who claim to be Christians, but they largely live like, like hedonists and humanists. They don't really live like Christians. They don't really know how to live as Christians. So this is the battle of our time. I think if you study church history and you look at the periods where where Christianity was the most profound, where the people reflected Christ the best in every area of life, this time will go down as one of the weak times, one one of the times when we really didn't understand things very well. There have been other times when when our brothers and sisters had incredible wisdom and insight and strength and character to do unbelievable things like martyrdom, 
today we don't see much of that here. I'm sure that there are some Christian martyrs around the globe, but it's not a common thing, particularly in the free world. In the uh, in the autocratic world, the world where the spirit of Antichrist really controls, it's more more frequent there. And the stories you we generally seem to hear of people really showing great Christian character many times come from those environments. Session four, lead by serving. Uh, this is well known. You hear servant leadership. The world talks about servant leadership, but they don't talk about it from a Christian worldview. Don't be confused. The, what the world talks about servant leadership is basically you manipulating people. It's Machiavellian. You have an agenda. You serve them and to, to get them to do what you want them to do. That's not biblical servant leadership. Biblical servant leadership is serving the purpose of God in people. And that's a lot different. It's leading them to alignment with the will and ways of God. It's leading them into alignment with the, the timing of God, leading them in alignment of working for the glory of God. In session five, we talked about engage in generational transfer. We talked about the organizational cycle. That is the, the phases of every organization. And these phases vary. There's some, there's some basic patterns, and, but each organization may take a slightly different path, but they ultimately you know, can be contained in this model that Barna had developed. We're going to take a quick look at that model again to remind you of that. But it's important that you understand the phases of this and why we go through these phases. And then today we're going to talk about the tips of how to build multi-generational organizations and challenge all of us, hopefully, to think deeper about how to do that. So let's uh, let's jump in here. Let me review real quickly where we are. We talked about, in the beginning, about the reality of the city of man and city of God. We are living in an environment that is very, very given to the city of man and very anti-city of God. Even among professing Christians, there is little understanding about the city of God, which I call living beyond Babel. And I used uh, some simple traits to contrast these two um, kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light, and the, straight of, uh, the states of, um, excuse me, the traits of state, attitude, grace, source of wisdom, etc. So I'm assuming you're familiar with these. I don't want to belabor them. I want to press on to the tips and the other things I think that will really help us go deeper with how to build multi-generationally. I also want to remind you about the statistics. Statistics are helpful. They're not dogmatic. They're not canonical in the sense that we can put the emphasis on them that we put with the truth of Scripture, but they're interesting to look at. And the statistics consistently show how difficult generational transfer is. It is exceedingly hard. It happens very rarely. And I'm going to show you in a minute some of the some of the oldest companies in history to hopefully illustrate that point of how difficult it is. Even when you're trying to be multi-generational, it is really, really hard. I think it all gets down largely to pride. And if you're proud, you will not grow and mature in Christ. So without that maturity in Christ, it's very, very hard to go beyond yourself. You live as a hedonist, a narcissist, a humanist, mammon worshiper. That's what happens to just about everyone with very, very few exceptions. Now, I told you I wanted to you know, review the Barna model just very quickly. I think it's a powerful model for the life cycle of organizations. As I mentioned, not every organization goes through all of these phases. 
Some do uh, do what's what he calls curve jumping, where they actually can can cycle back. You'll notice that the uh, the pinnacle here is balance, and that's when all the leadership styles are working together well. Everyone is is equally respectful of each other, and the organization is able to continue to grow and develop while it's maintaining great stability in delivering whatever it's delivering. But it didn't get there easily. You know, moving from conception to infancy to expansion to balance is a really hard process. It's full of risk, and many companies start and don't finish. But once you get to balance, there's a huge risk now of losing that balance and moving into stagnation. And if that happens, then you're on the road to disability. The only way to, to stop the stagnation and disability is you have to curve jump. That means you have to go back to the earlier stages, to infancy or expansion, and hopefully begin to rebuild energy in the company and vision and, and put, uh, you know, get yourself back on track. And you'll see what happens is uh, in the balance phase, everything is clicking well. But the imbalance phase, things stop working well, and generally what happens is the directional and strategic leaders get minimized. They may get bored and leave. They may get discounted. Their ideas are not, they're not received well because the operational leaders and the team builders um, are not interested in that. They're just interested in continuing what is. And the directional leader and strategic leader are always looking for, you know, what's next? You know, how do we go to the next phase? How do we improve? And those things bring risk in, in the minds of team builders and operational leaders. So unless you have really mature people of faith as team builders and operational leaders, they begin to discount the directional and strategic leaders. And so those, those people begin, to, that is the directional and strategic leaders begin to drift away. And that's what leads to the imbalance, which in which in causes you to go into stagnation and eventually to death and disability. So that's the model. I think it has a lot of lot to be commended to it. So I encourage you to read Barna's book. It's the last chapter of uh, Fish Out of Water, where he talks about this model. And whatever organizations you're part of, you will probably be able to find them somewhere in this uh, life cycle. And by understanding something about it. Uh, you'll know know what could happen to to potentially uh, regenerate and revise an organization. If you're going to be multi-generational, maintaining balance will be an enormous challenge. It will take great maturity and wisdom in Christ. And I think the statistics are, are testifying to the reality that generally the maturity of organizational leaders Today, maturity in Christ is not great enough to be able to support many, if hardly any, you know, multi-generational organizations. So that begs the question, are there any multi-generational organizations? Well, let me just offer you a few. So the oldest organization that I know of, the oldest business organization, there is one other organization older than this, but it's it's the Roman Catholic Church. So, but the only business organization that's, that's close to the Roman Catholic Church is Kangogumi. This is a Japanese Buddhist temple builder. They've existed for over 1,400 years. They were dissolved about 2005. 
And they were dissolved because they succumbed to a lot of the patterns of the world. The things that they did that kept them strong and kept them enduring, they gave up on. And when you give up on truth, then you're going to fold. Because it was biblical truth, whether they knew it or not, that really held them in good stead. First and foremost, the principle of C4. We know from Exodus 18, the principle of C4 can be gleaned by pagans through, through general revelation. That's exactly what happened with Moses' father-in-law. When, Mo, when he came to correct Moses, he corrected him and told him to use the C4 principle to deputize people to help him in the work of judging the Israelites. And so Moses did that, and that was a blessing. That enabled the community to move forward. That's always what happens when you align with God, that enables you to move forward individually and organizationally. So Kagogumi used the C4 principle that they gleaned from general revelation faithfully for 35 generations. And that led to this longevity. They also followed principles of being, of being very focused on what they were created to do. And now they were created to do something different, but they perceived what they were supposed to do was to build Buddhist temples. That's an illicit value proposition, but God honored that for a long time before he judged it. Illicit value propositions won't endure. They will eventually be judged. But when you follow biblical principles, there's a great deal of blessing that comes from doing that, even when you're doing illicit value propositions. So Congo Gumi's got the record, sadly. It's the rocks crying in the street because the Christians are not standing up and obeying God as they should. Then we have a company called Tuttle Farm. It's been in existence for nearly 400 years. It was an early, early farm in New England, probably Puritan farm. The best I can tell, that would be what it was. It, it, it has endured and continues to endure today. A, a lot of biblical principles are practiced there. You have Lloyd's of London, which is over 300 years, Consolidated Edison going back 200 years, and IBM, which goes back about 100 years. These are some of the oldest organizations in the world today. And with every one of them, you'll be able to find you know, biblical principles at play, keeping the organization intact and enabling it to move forward. So what happens to all those other organizations that get judged, that they, they don't endure, they're not multi-generational or not significantly multi-generational? They may be multi-generational for one generation or two, but, uh, but that's it. Uh, they, it's hard to go beyond that. Uh, what happened there? Well, let me just give you some examples, four examples of what typically happens. Number one. You see, I'm going from left to right, uh, Willow Creek, and I've labeled this problem founder abuse. You may be aware of the Willow Creek experiment. It's um, about the early 1980s. Uh, Bill Hybels founded the Willow Creek community. It was alleged to be a Christian church uh, that went on for 20 or something years, and then they grew and grew and grew and became very popular and then Willow Creek decided to do a study to see how they were doing as a church. And they rightly you know, defined success as making disciples of Jesus Christ. They rightly defined disciples as people who grow and mature in Christ-likeness. Those are really good definitions 
that every Christian community should adopt. They hired a, an, a, a, a consulting firm. I understand they spent something like $3 million over several years for this consulting firm to research and study Willow Creek to find out how, how they were doing making disciples. The end of the study was that Willow Creek was a failure. Willow Creek was not making disciples at all. Uh, if there ever were disciples at Willow Creek, they had long been long left because at the time this study was going on, which was the early part of the 21st century, there was there weren't any left that the researchers could find. So Willow Creek very, very graciously wrote a book and admitted their sin. They called the book, the name of the book was Reveal, and basically revealing the error of their ways. And then they wrote a second book called Follow Me, which was all about what should we be doing. If we're going to make disciples, if that's going to be our definition of success as a local church, then what do we do? And they concluded we need to do it the way Jesus did. We need to build relationships with people, walk with people, teach them the word, hold them accountable to the word, help them solve problems biblically. That is the way to disciple. Now, today, very few churches have any vision for that. They talk about discipleship, but they try to disciple people impersonally through programs. Discipleship is not an impersonal experience. It's a personal experience. And the only way it happens well is when people walk together. They walk through life together. They struggle through life together. They encourage each other through the battles of life together. They grow in understanding scripture together, get grounded in the word and a Christian worldview together, learn to march in step with the Holy Spirit. All of these things, that these are the things that Jesus did. And today we don't do those. In fact, when I talk to church leaders about this, invariably when they, they, they'll look at that model and say, yeah, that's what he did, but that takes too much time. We don't have time to do that. And so as a result, because they've abandoned the methodology of Jesus and, and, and adopted a worldly methodology, their fruit is very minor, meager, almost non-existent. And Willow Creek's case, almost not, you know, it's, it's never really been very, very strong. Now, Willow Creek saw what needed to be done, wrote the book, and uh, they started having leadership conferences every year where they, uh, where they would discuss these things. And I remember our church would send a representative just about every year, and I would always talk to him when he got back, what did you see? And the report was always the same year after year. No real change. I said, are they doing what, what they said they would do and follow me? And he said, no. And I couldn't understand this for a long time. Why aren't they doing this? You know what to do, but you're not doing it. You know you're not a success if you if you don't make disciples and you know what you're doing. It's not making disciples. What, what's going on here? Finally, in about 2017, uh, what happened was abuse was exposed. The founder had been engaged in sexual improprieties and sexual abuse for 30 years or more. And this besetting sin was setting at the core of this organization in the senior leader and just crippling everything else in the organization. And so it was, it's been a hard period of time the last, you know, since then to try to correct that. And they've eliminated just about everybody that had anything to do with the organization prior to uh, this, you know, this revelation of this impropriety. And so now they have all new leadership and it appears they're continuing to do what they've always done 
they've apparently staying with with building a mega church, working on programs, and forgetting the idea of building disciples through relationships. So that's that's what leads to that's a judgment. The organization is a failure. It continues to be a failure, and most of the Christian world can't see it because they don't really have the eyes to see with metaphysical awareness. Now, another problem uh, that will lead to judgment is inept boards. This probably this has been one of the things I've been watching for a long, long time, um, and I've been involved with some of this myself. I've experienced it, so it's been very painful. In fact, where I've come to with the whole idea of boards is uh, I've concluded I'm just not going to be involved with hardly any. I will make I've made one exception, but I'm not going to be involved with dysfunctional boards. I've had many opportunities in recent years. I've declined them all uh, because I've yet to find an organization that really was committed to a healthy governing board. So the boards wind up being inept. And Forbes magazine published an article where they talked about the five most common mistakes that board of directors make. And I just want to read these to you. Number one is they don't do their homework. That is, the board doesn't do its homework. So they just come in with opinions and they think that somehow they've been promoted to omniscience. You know, it's so true. Many times boards are put together by people who have been successful in other organizations assuming that they can bring that success to this organization. Well, uh, I think cross-pollinating has some value, but most likely what you need in board members in your organization is really very competent people who understand the business, understand the organization, not just people that understand some other organization. Secondly, these board members don't understand the social dynamic and culture of the board, and they try to advance a position before understanding what the group dynamic is. Most of the time, board members really don't have much contact with the, the organization. They don't know the people well. They don't know the culture well. They don't know, you know, really what, what's really going on in the minds of the workers. So they're really disconnected. The third thing, these board members don't know, not realizing where the power on the board really lies. There's almost always one person or two persons that really are controlling the board and everybody else is pretty much doing whatever they say. And to some degree that happens because people want to be on the board and stay on the board. So they don't want to rock the boat. Most of them make a good salary from this. It's a, it's a prestigious thing. It's an ego thing. And they, uh, they want that on their resume. And so what do we do to, how do we get along? And so they compromise, they don't stand up for truth. The third thing is uh, they don't invest the time with the CEO to understand the trust and, and gain their trust and understand what they're trying to do. In other words, again, it's not a strong relational bond with the leadership there of the organization. It's when you don't really know the people and you know the culture of the organization, it's really hard to have much wisdom. And finally, board members don't understand that there are really only three questions that the board is there to monitor. Okay, first, the board is there to monitor, is the company performing for the stakeholders? Okay, now they use shareholders, I use stakeholders, because I think that the company needs to perform for everyone that's connected to the organization. Customers, vendors, everyone should benefit. They all should be considered. So that's where I would disagree with Forbes. Secondly, do we have a healthy environment, including social factors, compliance factors, legal factors, 
I think that's very important, but it has to be framed biblically. It cannot be framed culturally. And that's what's happening today. You're not going to see healthy functioning boards, you know, coming up with LBGTQ kinds of uh, of initiatives, which are very popular today and hopefully are going to fail. They've already failed considerably and hopefully they will continue to fail. That will be a blessing, blessing to the rest of us. And finally, the other question, third question that the boards really should be monitoring is, does the CEO have the judgment and deportment and personal characteristics to lead this company? Is the CEO really called to be here? I would say, does they, do they really have C4 to do this? And do his does his team, each member of his team have C4? But particularly the CEO. If the CEO has C4 and he's strongly committed to that principle, he should have a C4 team or he should be working toward it. All right, so UNEP boards are, pro, are prevalent. I, you know, I would say I, my own personal experience, I can't point to a board of directors and say, hey, that's a really solid, well-functioning board of directors. Uh, you may be able to do that. If you can, that's great. I would love to hear it, but I have never found that to be true. The fourth thing is uh, the unqualified successor. And this gets us back to the story of, of Ann Wang and Wang Laboratories. And this is a very classic problem. Ann Wang, you know, was a very dysfunctional leader because he was trying, his whole agenda was not to seek the will of God. It was revenge. He was after revenge. Pride, arrogance got in the way. He was trying to kill IBM because he viewed IBM as having done him wrong and mistreated him and abused him. And he was after him. So revenge, revenge never leads to good fruit. Along the way, as you're beginning to recognize your frailties, and then Wayne got sick, and uh, he could tell his end of time was coming, uh, he was trying to force generational transfer on his son. Tried, he had uh, three children, and he was trying to get his eldest son to assume his role. So they were putting, he was going through various training to try to get there, which that's good. But, you know, when you try to force a son into a position that the son's not called to, it will not go well. And that appears to have been the case with Ann Wang with his son. His son wasn't really called to do what his father had done. And you've got to be careful as fathers that you don't abuse your children by trying to force them into a, a position that they're really not called to. Trust that if if God is is in this organization and leading and guiding you and it will be multi-generational and he will provide the leader, whether it's your biological son or not, you've got to be open that it may be a spiritual son. And finally, a fourth example is founder regrets Uh, in Barnes chapter six of his book. He talks about um, founders that, that reach the end of their tenure are close to the end and they look and they, they look at the fruit of their labors and they're frustrated. They feel like they haven't accomplished what they wanted to accomplish. They're disappointed. And that leads them to do things. Uh, one of the things that they might do is they may, you know, pretend to go through generational transfer, actually find a successor, put them in place and talk about supporting them. But in the end, they're sabotaging them. They're working against them. And that's exactly what happened with uh, W.A. Criswell at First Baptist in the early 90s, early part of the 1990s. He found a successor, a man named Joel Gregory. Um, and Joel lasted about two years. And at the end, he realized that, that Criswell was not going to let him succeed. 
Criswell was going to continue to sabotage. Now, Criswell denies it, uh, but you look at the data, uh, it certainly looks like that there was a lot of um, um, less than 100% support there. Let's put it that way. So uh, that made it really difficult, and Joel Gregory just decided to resign. And I'm not saying he resigned well. He resigned kind of abruptly on a Wednesday night, and uh, and everybody was surprised and didn't know what was coming. That's probably not a great way to do it. So, you know, I think there's some fault there with him too, but I think it's a great picture of how how difficult it is with founders. It's really hard to pass the baton and they'll have regrets. And even when they're trying to act like they don't, they do. And it comes up and it sabotages things. And that becomes another way that organizations get judged. So, these are just some examples of how organizational judgment happens. And I think more often than not, it happens because there are so very, very, very few multi-generational organizations today. So let me give you some tips on preparing for generational transfer. How to engage. All right. Number one here is prepare yourself. The best way you can prepare yourself, be humble, submitted, and teachable. Now, that is so easy to say, but so very hard to do. You're never going to do that well if you're not under godly spiritual parents, particularly a godly father who will hold you accountable. That's absolutely essential. Second thing you need to do is you need to run your race. You need to recognize God has a call on everyone. He has a call on you, and it is to do his will according to his ways and his timing for his glory. And, he, and his will is very specific for you. It's specific to your marriage, your family. It's specific to your workplace. It's specific to your Christian community. It's specific to where you live. It's specific to what your functions are in every area of life. It's very specific. So we have to be about that, about seeking the will of God. The C4 principle is a tool to help us get aligned with God. And when we use that practically in every area, like, in the, in the church world, understand what we have C4 to do. At, at work, what do we have C4 to do? In our community, what do we have C4 to do? And there may be some variation in those callings. And you've got to be engaged in your race the way God has created and called you to engage. So that's, that's the second way you prepare yourself. A third way you prepare yourself is you multiply yourself. We're not here for ourselves. We have to learn to delight in multiplying people. We have to learn to, to sacrifice to help people grow. This is what it looks like. It's very difficult and challenging because we all get very narcissistic. We all get very self-focused. We all get pleasure-focused. We get money-driven. And all of those things stand in the way of us making disciples. So we have to continually die to that. We have to have the light shine on it when when our spiritual parents see it, they shine the light on it, say, listen, you need to deal with this. That's a good thing. Listen to them. Ask for grace to deal with the problem and sacrificially serve the purpose of God and those whom God has called you to disciple. And another way you walk this out is be interdependent. You're interdependent when you do not seek to live life based on your own understanding. You lean on others. You seek the Lord. You know he will speak through them. You trust that he will speak to him, and you learn how to depend 
on others to help you and you learn how to give and help others as well. So you've got to prepare yourself. You've got to have the right heart. You've right character, be in your calling, be humble, submitted and teachable. All these things have to come together for you to engage in generational transfer. The next thing is you have to prepare your successor. You, you know, Jack Welch did an excellent job of identifying candidates, and I don't know anything about his spiritual state. He appears to have had common grace to be able to do this, and that's great. Sadly, people like W. Criswell didn't appear to have common grace to do this. He didn't do it nearly as well as Jack Welch did. I think in the end, uh, W. Criswell was able to do generational transfer, but it was a very hard, long process. Well, Welch's process was hard and long, too, but he was able to not make some of the mistakes that W. Criswell made. And I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. I'm just simply pointing out different people will have different experiences. And sometimes the pagans will do things better than the Christians because we are not profoundly Christian today. We can talk it, but we can't walk it. When we start being able to walk it profoundly, we will start running circles around the pagans. We're not there yet. Next thing, you have to train and screen the candidates. You've got to look for those people that God has called to be part of the organization. You've got to look for C4 people. And you've got to, you've got to make disciples. It's not just looking for them. You have to train them and develop them and make them. A lot of the time that Jack Welch spent with his candidates was training them, discipling them. Now, he wouldn't have called it that, but that's what he was effectively doing. Eventually, he selected the right candidates. And I don't know if he knew this principle of C4, but I think that intuitively through common grace, he was looking for people who had a heart, looking for people who had great character, looking for people who were skilled and, and, and successful and demonstrated that in their work. Every one of his candidates at the end had been a great success in one of the divisions of GE. That was a great metric. It wasn't the only metric. And then he commissioned it. Once, uh, once he chose his successor, he supported him. He truly supported him. He did better than W.A. did, W.A. Criswell did. So finally, you commission him. You pray for him. You lay hands on them. You ordain them. Now, that's really sparring. We don't think about ordaining people to anything other than church work. If everything else is out of bounds. In fact, continually when I bring this up, it doesn't matter what setting. People have no grace to hear this. But we're going to read, read, go back to Acts 6, which we've already looked at before. We're going to look at it one more time here in a few minutes to just hopefully encourage you that this is, this is a powerful reality. Learning how to ordain people to licit vocations. Every person has a licit call to a licit vocation. And we need to be humble enough to know everything isn't church work. It's all licit activities. So reformers, particularly people like Luther, but Calvin as well, really understood this. Now, their followers kind of lost sight of this and dualism crept back in. But the reformers 500 years ago really embraced holism at a level that's rare. We're not anywhere close to what they did to embrace holism today, which is a big problem for us because we don't we can talk about holism, but we really don't believe it until we really start doing things that are congruent with holism, don't claim to be holistic. You know, if you claim to be holistic, then you need to be radical about holism. Jesus is Lord of everything, no exceptions. 
all callings are to illicit vocations are of God and valid, and the ecclesia should be training the saints to the various callings they have and, and engaging them in those callings and ordaining them to those callings. And I don't know of a single organization that claims to be a local church that does that today. Uh, so that's where we are very weak and we're very, I think, inept in our ability to walk in the kingdom message. Finally, you need to prepare your, not finally, but you need to prepare your leadership team. You need to build an equally yoked leadership team. That's the only way forward. Sometimes I see people thinking that they can build to control organizations through systems. That's folly. Systems are not tools of control. Systems are tools to support the people that are called to be there. They should be used to help. They should not be used to control. We want equally yoked leaders in, in every position. You want someone who's equally yoked to the team. It's got C4 to be on the team, got common vision that was a team player that's working for the good of the whole, that respects all the other leaders, that cooperates and supports all the other leaders, that's dying to sell, that's not pursuing his own agenda, is pursuing the, the good of, and the welfare of the organization and everyone involved in the organization. You've got to build a communi- communication transparency. You've got to communicate truth. You've got, you've got to stop hiding things. It's so common today to hide things. And I, I agree there are times when that you must do that and it's appropriate, but generally you want to be transparent. Speak the truth. Speak the whole truth. Nothing but the truth. Don't mislead, misrepresent. Put the truth out there. Develop and update your enduring purpose. Know that no one has got a crystal ball to understand perfectly what the call of God is on any individual personally or an organization corporately. Everyone needs to revisit what they believe that God is calling them to do from time to time, always seeking to discern the will of God. And we have to build an outstanding reputation. There's nothing more valuable than an outstanding reputation. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver or gold. This is what the Proverbs tell us. When you are delivering your value proposition the most important thing to do is to deliver a great value proposition. Under promise, over deliver. Treat your clients and your customers very well. Take care of them. Anticipate problems. Get ahead of those problems. Show that you are a problem solver. Don't be an excuse maker. Don't blame. Be a person that takes responsibility and someone will want to do business with you. And as they want to do business with you, then they don't care what your competition's price is. They don't care what the incentives are from the competition. They want to do business with you. That's what we should be doing if we're preparing a solid multi-generational organization is building a great reputation. Finally, prepare your organization. You've got to get your organization ready for generational transfer. Is it going to happen automatically? You've got to proactively engage. First, eradicate self-glory. We all have the propensity to build Tiles or Babel. Nothing has changed. We all do that. We have a tendency to do that. We have to recognize it. It's in all of us, and we have to die to that. And we can. the only person that we should seek to glorify is the Father. There's no other person that deserves glory but him. 
eradicate narcissism. Narcissism is all about self-centeredness. What's in it for me? We should never be asking what's in it for me. We should be asking what's in it for God. What does he want? We should be praying and thinking big picture. Have you prayed and asked the Lord for a 10-year vision, a 50-year vision, a 100-year vision? Have you asked the Lord to show you how to use resources today to prepare your heirs, your, your biological and natural, your spiritual children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren for whatever God has them, called them to do and whatever this organization you're part of, what it's supposed to be doing at that time? There may be something you can do, some asset to purchase, something to put into place, something to prepare for it. And if the Lord wants you to do it, if you're humble, submitted, teachable, he will show you what you need to do. So be humble, be humble and not self-serving, not self-centered, but very, very humble before him, being willing to sacrifice the service purpose no matter what. Eradicate mammon worship. We all default to this. We all are trapped in this from time to time. We never lose the problem of mammon worship. It's always there. Until we transition to be with Christ, mammon worship will be a problem. But it can be less and less of a problem progressively over time. We must focus on making mammon what it is, a tool. And that's all it is. Don't make mammon an idol. And you have to know what's what's in all of us, you know, is mammon worship. It's out there in all of us. And we have to fight it first ourselves, and then we help those around us fight it as well. Eradicate elephants and sacred cows. Elephants are topics that you can't talk about. Sacred cows are people you can't touch. Either one of them, they're out of order. When you have topics you can't touch and talk about, you are not transparent. You're not open and communicating well, and there will be things that will, will trip you up. When you have sacred cows, you have people who are out of place. Anyone that's out of place in your organization is being abused. Everyone that God creates, hey, he has a place and assignment for them. We have no right as leaders and managers to use people outside the call of God. When that happens, we need to be quick to repent. Now, please understand, I understand there's a progression that we take people through. They may apprentice with us. They may, be, they may start out at a very lowly position and work their way up. That is part of the process of discovering your C4. Anybody that's in that process is in a good place. But it's when people get outside that process and they get into positions that they really shouldn't be in, they're not called to be in, they're not qualified to be in, God isn't ordained for them to be in. We just put them there because it was convenient for us or because they wanted it or whatever the reason was, we have to be very quick to repent of that and stop that. We cannot let that happen. That's abuse. And we have to be very serious about eradicating abuse. So let me just give you uh, another charge on nepotism real quickly. Be very clear about nepotism. Nepotism is really, really dangerous. It is, uh, it's all about us. It's so easy to get into it. And the conventional definition is a pretty good definition. It's the unfair practice by a powerful person of giving jobs and other favors to relatives. It's showing favor based on, on some relationship. Generally, it would be blood, but it could be some other relationship. Suppose it's uh, friends from college, your buddies. It might be that. So in, in any kind of favoritism where you're 
ability to discern the will of God is, is tarnished by your own fleshly desires. That's, that's nepotism. Understand the danger of nepotism. Using a relative inconsistent with the call of God or any person inconsistent with the call of God on his or her life is basically that leads you to nepotism. That's what it is. And here's the verse here out of Genesis 17. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live with you. He, Abraham wanted Ishmael to be the son. And God said, no, it's going to be Isaac, not Ishmael. So this is what happens sometimes when we think a promise of God is not being fulfilled. We try to help God out as if he needs help. And we come up with these crazy schemes and we wind up doing stupid stuff like this. We have to really be guard ourselves and know if God is a will for something, he has ways to get it done. And he promised us in Matthew 6:33 that he will fund his will, including he'll provide the people. So what is not nepotism? Anytime you use a son or daughter consistent with the call of God on his life, it's not nepotism. You want to use people, not only sons and daughters, relatives, friends, everyone consistent with the call of God. That's the only way forward. Now, just some quick observations here. If God works multi-generationally, shouldn't we? Hopefully your answer is immediate, like, well, yes, we should. That's the way he is. Or what is the oldest organization that claims to be built on Christ? Well, I mentioned to you earlier, that's the Roman Catholic Church. They claim to have been in continuous operations at the time of Christ. However, if you've been a student of the Roman Catholic Church history, you know they are very corrupt now. They have been corrupt a long time. They got off the rails, but they've been, they've been able to maintain control, but they are on the way to judgment. It's just a matter of when and exactly what it's going to look like. And why aren't there many multi-generational leaders? Because of pride. It is difficult for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God because of pride. He's proud of his wealth. The wealth, the mammon worship creates pride in all of us. Psalm 73 is another great text, which tells us, if you have resources and an easy life and you are not walking with God, then you're under judgment. You got to be clear on that. Resources provision is not a sign of blessing. A sign of blessing is having what you need to do what you're called to do. And you are seeking to do the will of God. That's blessing. But if you have resources and you are not seeking God and you have an easy life, it's just a setup for judgment. So be clear on that. Psalm 73 makes that very clear. Now, I want to just um, play a short clip here. I'm hopeful this will play well. Uh, this is an ordination service about, uh, or about, about 2017, 18, something like that. James Robinson, many of you may, may know him, has been um, a Christian leader for a long time. And he was looking for a successor. And he's picked Samuel Rodriguez. Now, I don't know anything about Samuel Rodriguez other than ever since this ordination service, I've had questions come up about him. I don't know what James Robinson did to select him, but I do think what he did to ordain him is interesting. And it's something we should all be considering. We should be thinking about how we can ordain people to their various work assignments. And that's a, 
that's hard today in our the way we think about Christianity because we limit it. We we truncate it. We don't bring Christianity outside of the local church well, except evangelism and maybe be ethical. But we don't bring the call of God, you know, outside. That we limit that to the church place. So I'm going to show this to you with full, full realization that the dualism is very much on display here. But I think it's interesting to see how committed James is in his prayer, praying blessing over Samuel Rodriguez, alignment with the will of God. That's great prayer. So let's just watch this and see if we can learn something. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I want you to put such a shelter and a shadow over Sammy that he can't ever move out of the very center of it. I want you to be the shepherd that directs every step he takes and every word he says. Holy Spirit, I want you to fill him so full and overflowing that all of the resistance on planet Earth cannot ever slow down the release of the power of your spirit and the water of your life. And God, I pray that he'll walk in such humility before you that he will be that yielded vessel through whom you can flow a river of living water that cannot be stopped but will quench every thirsty heart and life in America. God, keep your arms around him. He is so special. Everything you've ever placed on me that was of value and important, put it on him. Put a double portion on him, God. And let the world and the church hear the message you put in him. And God, let that message burn in the heart of every preacher, priest, and person, and every Christian on this planet. Dear God, thank you for what you're doing. Use us according to your will. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done right here on earth, right now, through us, for your glory, forever and ever and ever and ever. And the church said amen. 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 Well, that's a powerful message. Um, why can't we pray that over anyone that we really have discerned is aligning with the call of God on his life? That may have been the kind of prayer that was prayed at the ordination of the food distributors in Jerusalem in Acts 6. These seven men were selected to, to meet a need in the organization. The, the early ecclesia lived in a community. Now you can see this did not was not the norm after the first days of Christianity, but in those early days it was how they lived, and they needed the food distribution to be handled properly. It was not being handled properly. There was sin in the camp, and so the, the apostles gathered together and said, "Okay, here's what we need to do. You need to appoint." Seven brothers, you know, who are, have a good reputation, who are full of the spirit and of wisdom, and who will, of whom we can appoint and commission to this duty. And so the people did that. The people used the C4 principle to select these seven, seven men. Hopefully you recognize I've got highlighted here calling, uh, character, capability, and commission. Calling is pick out. Uh, character is good reputation, full of the spirit. 
Wisdom is capability. And finally, commissioning is a point. Commissioning is always where you are appointed. Think of calling as being called to Christ by someone. And commissioning is being set out by Christ using someone. So that's a way to think about it. And you see in verse 6, now they bring these, these men, they set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. That's, uh, I don't know what kind of prayer they had, but maybe it was similar to what you saw with James Robinson, but I think it would have been whole, a lot more holistic. James was, was praying as if that the only thing that's important is somebody, you know, a preacher out there preaching a word. And that's a whole other debate, you know, exactly what should that be. But I think it's fair to say the early church had vision far beyond what we do for what ordination should include. They had no hesitation to lay hands on these men. I've actually talked to church leaders before and challenged them. I said, do you ordain your, your people to the workplace? The people where you see the call of God on them to do whatever they're doing, uh, do you ordain them to do that work? And they said, oh, no, we don't do that here. I said, why not? I mean, you have an example here in Acts 6. It seems to suggest that would be a good thing. Oh, we just don't do that. They, they have That's the only thing they give you. We don't do that. And that's sad because that's a mark of immaturity. It's a mark of, of a dualistic mindset as opposed to a holistic mindset. And as we've talked before, when you, when you think dualistically, Jesus is not Lord of everything. In the end, what will happen, what God is doing is restoring the uncontested rule of Christ over everything. There is a sense of which the visible church right now is contesting the rule of Christ. We're contesting his rule outside the church and the family. And we need to repent of that and begin to embrace Jesus as Lord in every area of life. That's a challenge we have. All right, so I want to just uh, real quickly go into some exercises here. Uh, I want to point you to this um, chart that I, that I showed you earlier when I talked about Rutgers and uh, Ann Wang. And this was the comparison of Ann Wang's single generational model to Mike Rutgers' you know, multi-generational model. And you see there's a number of traits there, 10 or 11 traits that I use to compare the two to distinguish one from the other. Hopefully you, you've got a sense of that. Uh, connected to this is an exercise that hopefully you will enjoy as you go through this and score yourself. You basically pick uh, an organization that you are part of or you know of or you have been part of, and you uh, you go down here and just see uh, how they would score. Uh, the, mold, the model single generational column, which is the second column from the left, uh, anything there that you agree with will be a zero. And in the far right column, is the multi-generational model. Anything there you agree with would be a 10. And obviously it's an analog scale, so you use any number between zero and 10 to give you the degree to which you are agreeing with the multi-generational model. So that would be a very interesting exercise for you to do. There's also an exercise here about how well you're preparing for generational transfer. And you'll see a, a, a number, again, 11 uh, traits here. The last trait, is talking about eradicating idolatry in your organization. And based on that particular comment, I put together another exercise. This is uh, looking at idolatry in your organization. 
and uh, just trying to get some sense of how much of it, you know, how much is there and what is there. Uh, and that's good to know. It's good to analyze organizations and see where is the problem. And so I give you some sense of how to work on the solutions. All right. So I want to now conclude here by talking about the good news. I've been talking at the end of each of these lessons over the last you know, six months, talking about the good news, understanding the good news, the good news of salvation or the good news of the kingdom of God, the gospel of salvation or the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the gospel of salvation, as properly understood, is dualistic. The gospel of the kingdom of God, as properly understood biblically, is holistic. And all of us, on some level, struggle. Uh, we we very easily will fall into the left-hand column. And we know, if we study scripture, pretty quickly you find out the right-hand column is truth. And now moving from the left-hand column, which is what we want to believe, to the right-hand column, which is the truth, is the challenge. So I went through 11 traits here. Jesus is Lord, Christianity, good news, comparing the gospel of salvation's view on these points to the kingdom of God, gospel of the kingdom of God's view on these points. So today I'm going to finish the last three. So here on the next slide, there's another 11 traits, and the last three are at the bottom. And the first of these three is major life choices. So the gospel of salvation, the dualistic view of Christianity, presumes the right to choose. Life choices are means, you know, who do you marry? Um, what profession are you engaged in? Where do you live? What car do you drive? What vacations you take? Who your friends are? What church you're part of? Where you work? Everything. You believe, believe that is your right to choose. Whereas the gospel of the kingdom says, no, it's not. It's not my right. It's God's. I seek to obey God's will. Seek obedience to God for guidance on his choices. If you can't learn to do that, you'll just live in the flesh. You'll just do what you want to do. You will be never checked, and you'll just live dualistically. But living, learning to live aligned with the will and ways of God in the time you've got, in the glory of God, that is a real big challenge. And we, we have to individually engage. We have to engage with our spiritual parents. We have to help others in our community engage. We have to practice this holistically in every area of life. So that's major life choices. Next one is charity. To the dualistic worldview, charity means uh, meet perceived needs. That is needs defined by man. You know, give away to charity. Give to the, the charity of the month. Give to whatever the latest crisis has been, whatever. So you focus on need as defined by man. The problem is we don't have the right to define needs. It's only God who can define our real needs. See, because, you know, again, that's that's plays off of choices here. We want to choose the right to define our needs. We don't have that right. So once we understand that we are servants, servants don't have the right to define anything. Servants' responsibility is to obey the master. So we have the responsibility to discern what the master says the real needs are. And finally, take a look at the definition of a Christian. For the people that embrace the gospel of salvation, which is the popular message today, 
we think a convert, anybody that makes a profession of faith is a Christian. That's what we that's what we say. You make a profession of faith, we'll baptize you. You make a profession of faith, you can join our church. You make a profession of faith, you can teach Sunday school or volunteer in our church in some way. That's that is a very, very low bar. A true disciple is one whose profession of faith is validated by his works. He makes a profession of faith, and then you watch. The Puritans were some of the best, and maybe maybe before them, the three, the first 300 years of Christianity, the very early Christians were, were good at this as well. They didn't believe anyone was a real disciple until they saw evidence of transformation, real evidence. Profession of faith didn't carry much weight. They expected that, but that was not enough. They would not baptize you. In fact, the early church, you you couldn't get baptized yourself. You couldn't ask to be baptized. They didn't, and the church leaders didn't call out for anybody want to be baptized, we'll baptize you. They didn't do that. They watched people, and usually they'd watch them over months and years, and when they saw transformation, they trained them to obey the commands of Christ. They believed that you, that was what Matthew 28 says, train them to obey the commands of Christ. So they did that. And when they saw them respond well to it, then they would explain the gospel to them. They would not explain the gospel to them until they saw significant transformation in them. Now that's stunning. We would never do that because we, our bar is so low, you know, about who we say is a Christian and who isn't that it's almost not a bar at all. We can have somebody say, I'm an American and I, that therefore I'm a Christian and we might believe that. That would never have been believed by the Puritans, never been believed by the early church, never been believed by the Moravians, people like that. They were much more profound in their convictions and how to live their faith. We need to step up. We need to develop a holistic kingdom worldview and we need to live as real Christians, people who walk the talk, whose lives reflect Christ by how they think, how they speak, how they act, and what their choices are. That's what we have to learn to do. So may the Lord give us grace to step up, and may the Lord give us grace to live as true Christians in Jesus' name. Amen.